0: Let's go places.
2: Information.
3: This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing from iHeart Radio. My guest today wears many, many, many hats. He's a radio host, columnist, author, playwright, college lecturer, and has even written incidental monologues for a symphony. He's also one of my favorite broadcasters on public radio. The host Of the Colin McEnroe Show on Connecticut Public Radio, it's the man himself, Colin McEnroe. On his show, McEnroe unpacks the week's events in news and pop culture in addition to covering some truly eccentric topics like Neanderthals, zippers, tambourines, and punk rock. McEnroe's writing has appeared in the New York Times, Men's Health, McSweeney's, and even Cosmopolitan. As a columnist and hometown hero of Hartford, his work has appeared in local papers like the Hartford Current, Stanford Advocate, the New Haven Register, and the Connecticut Post. Of all the paths Colin McEnroe could have taken, I wondered how he found his way to public radio.
4: Radio was never the plan. Um, the plan was to be a writer. <laughs> and what happened actually was in 1992, I was a newspaper columnist. And that was right around the time that Limbaugh and Hannity and all those people, they had taken over what was the vast wasteland of AM radio and turned it into a different kind of wasteland with the kind of show that they were doing. But they took the AM ban, which was almost useless at that point, and they, you know, they revived it. And I was interested in that, and I was offered an opportunity as a newspaper columnist to guest host on two different radio stations. And to my dismay, they both offered me jobs on the spot when I got off the air. I mean, I thought this was like a horrible industry full of bullies and morons. So it was disappointing to discover that I was a natural
3: at it. You fit right in. Yeah. Well, the truth of the matter is, is that that's another thing that struck me is all your credentials. You know, you, you went to Yale. You went there on a scholarship. And then you wound up teaching in the political science department. Now, I studied poli-sci at George Washington University for three years before I then took off and uh, went to NYU to study acting. But what specifically do you teach at the poli-sci department there?
4: I teach a seminar in the spring term that's about political media. I mean, it's called 21st century political journalism. I feel like more and more it's about political media because there's such a blurring of all that. I I will say this also. I'm relatively confident at this point about being, you know, a pretty okay radio host. I have terrible imposter syndrome when I'm teaching in the poli sci department (laughs) at Yale. And when the seminar is over every week, I step out onto Prospect Street and I think I am a freaking fraud. These kids should get their tuitions prorated and get their money back. Now, why do you feel that way? Why? I really don't know the answer to that, except that it's, you know, it's a little bit out of my comfort zone. I wasn't a poli-sci major at Yale. I just think there's something about the classroom. I mean, they're looking right at you. I mean, Mm -hmm. I went into radio, so nobody would ever see me. So that could be part of the
3: problem. (laughs) But I also think that I've taught acting intermittently. You know, I did a full semester in 2013 at NYU with a teaching partner Daniel Specter, who was a fully accredited faculty there, I taught an acting class with a friend of mine in the summertime at the old LIU Southampton campus before Stony Brook took it over. And my friend Michael Disher, who taught full-time at the faculty there, he and I taught a class. And I must say, I didn't care for it because I don't think I have that skill to impart, I mean, I kind of look at them at the end and I'm like, well, either you've got it or you don't. Mm-hmm. You know, and I, I can make you a better actor than you were when you walked in, but I can't make you a good one. So the teaching thing for me, I felt uncomfortable teaching acting per se. Is there something you think you can teach?
4: Oh, no, I think I can teach this. And I do, right. I mean, uh, it's one of my favorite things in the world to do. I get a tremendous amount of gratification from it. And my students come out of this almost invariably saying... I didn't really think about journalism that way before. I didn't think about media that way before. What I say to them at the beginning of the semester is, I will have succeeded if for the rest of your life, rather than simply consuming journalism, political journalism, you think about all of the questions that we brought up here. That's a win for me. And I'm I'm thrilled during the semester when they do that, too. It's very, very exciting.
3: What's your journalistic Diet, meaning when you wake up in the morning, What where, where are you, David Remnick said he just reads the Times cover to cover. That's where he begins. What about you? <laughs>
4: um, it's a pretty diverse one. And of course, part of the problem with our show, our show, we do typically four new episodes of our show a week. And so we're kind of hungry for ideas all the time. So yeah, I mean, I do all the conventional stuff. I read the Times. I read the Washington Post. I read a lot of odd little publications on the internet. I, I read a lot of newsletters these days.
3: For example,
4: the one that I like right now is by a guy named Mark Slutsky. And I think he's like an independent filmmaker based in Montreal. And it's called his newsletter is called Something Good. And it's just Anything he thinks of, and he clearly thinks a little bit the way I do. In fact, I want to do something with Mark Slutsky. I want to have him on my show. I want to do something. I'm so, I don't know much about him, but I'm fascinated with the way his mind works. But there's one by a young guy. There's one called Tangle by a young guy named Isaac Saul. And he is doing, I think, maybe the best job I've seen of anybody trying to really look at both sides of, issue, of issues. The newsletter is nearly daily. And he he takes an issue... And he sort of, here's what the right is saying about it. Here's what the left is saying about it. Here's what I think about it. And it's a very useful crucible, I think, for, for looking at something that way.
3: When I do the show that I've done for a while, there's a part of me... I didn't really think very much about it in terms of why I did it. I I said, these are people that I'm fans of. I admire their work. I've always wanted to meet them and talk about their origin story and the the path of their career. People who I uh, am interested in what they have to say topically, uh, writers and so forth. I rarely sit there and say, who's this show for? I mean, I kind of have an idea about that. But when you're talking about politics, for example, when you're talking about Isaac Saul and Mark Slutsky and people like that you follow, who do you think shows that you craft in that way are aimed at? Who do you think is listening to your show? In, in
4: some ways, I have no idea, but we also, <laughs> we, we try not to think about that too much. I mean, the show really is the product of a group of people, not just me. And our whole philosophy is we're going to do something that really interests us. And we're going to try to do it in a creative enough way so that you'll enjoy it if you're open to that kind of thing. Now, sometimes, out of sheer perversity, we will deliberately pick a really bad idea just to see if we can do it. Could we possibly do it? For example... Well, I did a whole show about yodeling. Uh, and, you know, yodeling, more than five minutes of yodeling is kind of intrinsically annoying at a certain point. I mean, and I got a yodeling lesson. From but you didn't let that stop you. You didn't no, let no. that stop you. No. no, my thought is, if I can make you stay with me, stay with me all the way through this, this is going to be I'm more make you love
3: yodeling. <laughs>
4: <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> and I sort of think that was a bad show in some ways, but it was also a really good show. I mean, people would back away from me if I, when I said I want to do an entire episode about yodeling. They would make excuses to leave the room. We even have a thing, with a kind of an internal term within our show called the bad ideas department, where we will work really hard on an idea we know is bad just to see if we could possibly do it. Now, this also leads to some epic failures. I mean, people in the business will bring up shows we did 10 years ago that were such <laughs> disasters But you can't be afraid of that, you know? I mean, I I, I know you interviewed Ira Glass, and he and I spoke about this, and we were both kind of saying, you know, you can't break public radio. You could do a bad episode. It's not like we have a patient on the table we're going to lose. The worst thing you're going to do is do an episode that's not great. And in my case, I got to do another
3: show tomorrow anyway. So the mothership for you is the Colin McEnroe show itself, which is on twice a day?
4: Yes, it's on uh, at one and at nine, yeah.
3: And what other shows are you doing there? What other duties do you have there at Public Radio in Connecticut?
4: I'm in and out as a political analyst. I have sort of a background in doing that kind of stuff. We, on occasion, first of all, I do not I do four shows a week. I feel like I, right. I don't need any more jobs. But right. um, one thing that we did is at the beginning of the first Trump impeachment, as it was clearly coming, first of all, we thought, well, we're going to get preempted. So what should we do? And we decided that we would invent a new podcast that would be sort of a stealth brand podcast. And we called it Pardon Me, Another Damn Impeachment Show. And we decided to do it as usual, as differently from everybody else as we could. So we, we made it sort of um, more cross-disciplinary. I mean, we would have legal experts on, but we would also maybe have Dave Eggers, who's a novelist on, or we'd have a musician on who's writing protest music, or just attack it from as many different angles as we could. And so two things happened. One of them was that, if you recall, Pelosi held the impeachment articles for an unusually long time. So we didn't get preempted, which means we were working around the clock on this new podcast and having to do our daily show. And there are people involved in that who never recovered, I think. And then the other thing happened was there was another damn impeachment. So we had to revive the brand all over again. So a lot of projects like that within. I'll just tell you one other thing that we did. We invented a format called Radio for the Deaf, which I know sounds almost like a joke, but it's not. We realized that deaf people obviously have no experience of radio. I was talking to this deaf woman who works at a uh, school near here, and she said, you know, I know you as a writer, but I don't know you as a radio host. I don't know what that is, really. And so we figured out how to do a show that was simultaneously transmitted using video streaming, was simultaneously translated using two ASL interpreters. And it was really, really hard. It took a, little, <laughs> a lot of work, but we were trying to see if we could create a radio product that deaf people could use, which is, once again, kind of an insane thing to try. And and it was, we did it. We ran out of money eventually, but we we did do that. So, yeah, I think maybe my other job at the company is to come up with improbable projects and try to make them work.
3: The um, public radio, uh, I was there with my show at NYC for a while. For you, why public radio and not something more commercial?
4: Well, I mean, one answer is I got fired from commercial radio. So I I have to back up and say, so remember I was telling you my origin story and how I I did this kind of guest hosting thing. And I wound Um, up at a pretty big CBS-owned radio station here in Connecticut where you know, the Limbaugh style was the dominant style and and content of programming. I was sort of the house liberal there. And so, I mean, the audience was overwhelming. The Alan Combs. I was the Alan Combs, I guess. Yeah. I mean, there are a couple of other analogies. But, you know, the audience was there for that. And almost everybody on the air, with a couple of other exceptions, was either Rush Limbaugh or somebody trying to be Rush Limbaugh. Mm -hmm. And then there was me. And so, I worked there for 16 years. And the audience just Hated me so much. I mean, I had a Connecticut audience. This is Connecticut. Yeah, but if the Connecticut still has conservatives and that's who this, the programming on the station. I mean, I had a lot of people who liked the show, obviously, but just it was, I always felt like the sword of Damocles was hanging over me. One of these days, they're just going to fire me because the show's too wrong for the the overall vibe of the station. And I'll just quickly tell you in commercial radio, as you perhaps know from your your previous, or from your other experiences. So ratings are really important. Arbitron is the big ratings company and they don't like us to ever talk to anybody from Arbitron because they're worried about the appearance of tampering. So one day I'm standing there in the studios and there's this guy walking towards me. He's pulling a suitcase and my boss is kind of hopping up and down behind him saying, He's from Arbitron and he wants to meet you. And he came to me. This is when they were, <laughs> I was, yeah, it was kind of a little nerve wracking. And he was kind of an ominous looking guy too. This is back when Arbitron was really relying heavily on written diaries. And he said, you know, I travel all over the country, and I read all these diaries. And he said, I've never seen anything like you. People hate you, and they listen for like 20, 25 minutes, hating you. He said, usually if people hate the the host, they just turn the show off. People don't do that with you. Because in commercial radio, you win the game if you keep somebody more than 15 minutes Uh, Uh And I was regularly doing that with people who just were, you know, on the verge of vomiting over everything that I said, which that was one of the most thrilling days of my life, Alec, because I thought, thought, well, that's great because, you know, we're so siloed in this country, you know. I mean, we tend to listen to, read and consume media and content that kind of reinforces our idea. Reinforces, yeah. Yeah. And so that I could actually get people who think very, very different from me to listen for protracted periods. It really felt like a real win. So I liked commercial radio for that reason. I mean, there were many, many days where the primary job of the operations manager was to take phone calls from people who wanted me fired instantly. But it was still exciting and fun and really kind of different. You know, when I went over to public radio, it was a big adjustment. I mean, everything was so much more civilized, and I wasn't used to it.
3: And that was when? What year?
4: It was, I started in 2009. And who brokered that arrangement? How did that
3: come to pass?
4: It was mainly a guy named John Dankosky, who was also a host at the time, but also kind of the leader of the newsroom. He'd been listening to me on this other station for a really long time. But I will say that at one point I was in a little meeting with the big bosses, and one man, a very, very nice man, he had this huge binder and he said, these are the public radio standards and practices. This is the handbook for public radio. So I'd like you to spend some time reading that. And he kind of pushed it across the table to me. And in the nicest way that I could, I pushed it back to him. And I said, I'm, I'm not looking at that. I don't want to know what the standards and practices are. If I did read it, it would be for the purpose of violating those standards at every opportunity. And they've been very patient also with that aspect of me.
3: Colin McEnroe. If you enjoy conversations with talented broadcasters from public radio, check out my interview with WNYC's Brian Lehrer of The Brian Lehrer Show.
4: The other thing about live radio as opposed to podcasts, people are constantly coming and going. So you have to reset, right? This conversation has to make sense if you tune in at 10 o'clock or if you tune in at 10.08. We have to constantly be thinking, okay, if this person tuned in to this half-hour segment 17 minutes through, we want it to be able to make sense for them, but at the same time be able to progress for the people who've been there since the beginning. It's just sort of a whole other layer of presentational awareness that you don't have on television,
0: and they don't have on podcasts.
3: Hear the rest of my conversation with Brian Lehrer in our archives at here's the thing.org. After the break, Colin McEnroe on Terrestrial Radio's potential extinction. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. Host Colin McEnroe has been a compelling and uninhibited presence on the radio since 1992. I was curious if the pressure and restrictions of the public airwaves ever constrain his instincts on the air.
4: First of all, I totally grant the premise of your question, and I certainly see that around me. But the direct answer to your question is no. I mean, my whole goal really has been to create a situation where I can do what I want to do and people, by and large, leave me alone. And that's the management where I work has been great about that. I mean, probably just it's such a pain in the ass to have a conversation with me that they're just they'd rather not do it. But also they just they've been very generous about that. And they know that whatever it is that I'm doing, it's reasonably successful. They don't try to tamper with it. And no, we don't really get that thing about you better not talk about, you know, car automobile safety because we've got some underwriters at Buick or something. That just doesn't happen with us. You're untouched by that.
3: I'm totally untouched by it. Do you have any fear about the long-term prospects for public media, public television, and public radio? I mean, as we are going to have, I think, Uh, people's charitable donations, I wonder. I go to philanthropy conferences every now and then because I work with the New York Philharmonic. And they talk about, you know, they have people speak about not just how to raise money, but how to spend it. They talked about the long-term arc of public giving decreasing for public media as it becomes a lower priority on their giving list. Do you fear that in public radio? I think we have to keep
4: changing and evolving. And one of the things that's, I mean, public radio is a battleship. It's hard to turn a battleship. You, you don't do it in 24 yeah. hours. So one thing that I say all the time is every day it becomes a little less important that we have transmitters. Like it is, it's great to have transmitters. So Alec Baldwin listens to my show, but it's increasingly the case that we'll be moving to digital that we are, my show is now, I think it's fair to say more popular and more listened to as a podcast than it is in its its broadcast time slots. And that's one thing that public broadcasting is going to have to understand. then I never go to the conferences, but the one conference I went to, I was pleased that there was an entire workshop on the automobile dashboard because, you know, you get lazy in radio and you think, OK, everybody's got a radio in their car and they're driving down the road at one o'clock and they're going to turn on the Colin McEnroe show. But increasingly, of course... Their dashboard is far more complex than that, and it often has smart speaker features where they can say, well, I know, put on, here's the thing. I don't want to listen to Colin McEnroe. So we've got to sort of face up to that. I know it's your voice that comes on and says that, which I'm I'm very I'm going to talk to Subaru about that. I want that change. But but, you know, we've got to really we've got to rethink all of those paradigms all the time. You cannot continue to do the same thing you've been doing and expect that to work. And in terms of the fundraising part, I don't know. I think that's on us. If we do the right kind of programming, it's pretty easy to go to a funder and say, look at this, look at what they're doing. Wouldn't you like to underwrite? Now, I don't need massive amounts of money to do my show, so I, I can't speak for, you know, what it's like for, you know, here and now or something like that.
3: Now, writing was the plan, as you mentioned, and uh, you've written for quite a deck of <laughs> publications, The Times, Men's Health, Cosmopolitan. What did you write about for Cosmopolitan?
4: You know— I, I'm going to answer this question, but with great reluctance. I'll just quickly say that I was—I had a little downtown office for my freelance writing career. This must have been back sometime in the 90s. And the phone rings one day, and this woman says, Hi, I'm Catherine Romano from Cosmopolitan. And Helen Gurley Brown is retiring, and we're about to we're kind of transform the magazine. And we've been reading your work and other magazines. We really like it. We think you're a great fit for our new look and our new style. And we'd like you just to get going with us right away. And I said, okay, uh, which is what I say to pretty much everything. And they said, we have an idea we think you'd be perfect for. And I said, okay, well, what is it? <laughs> and she said, it's, what, it's like a, a thousand word essay. What do men feel about women touching themselves? And to my credit, I screamed into the phone. And then I said, you don't even know me. Why am I perfect for this? Uh, no, how did you exactly. decide? I said, I'll do it. But I mean, why am I perfect for this? And so I ran, I wrote a whole series of uh, pieces for Cosmopolitan where I was terrified that my mother would pick up the magazine, you know, at the hair salon and start reading some, you know, something. That was is your mother still
3: alive, by the she's, way?
4: She's not anymore. No, but at oh, that yeah, time. I was
3: going to send her a copy, but it's yeah, okay. yeah,
4: no, 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 I had so many other ways of disappointing my mother that I didn't need Cosmopolitan's right.
3: help. So is there a phase where it's writing And only writing, or are you going back and forth between radio and writing?
4: Well, since I, once I started in radio in 92, I mean, I've never stopped doing radio except for the nine months after I got fired. So it's good to have something to fall back on at times like that. But I'll probably never entirely stop writing. Let me just say this, this goes back to pretty much your first question. There's something about radio, something about the intimacy of it, and something about the immediacy of it. I mean, Alec, I bet if I asked you, you could tell me the names of two or three Disc jockeys you listened to in fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth grade when you were starting yes. to listen to top 40 radio, you know yes. them, you know their fake names, you know, it's not really Sandy Beach or, or whatever the person's yeah. name was. You know, I mean, because those were voices that were really important to you at the very beginning. In some ways, they might be like the first grown-ups who were talking to you and specifically to you. They weren't talking your parents didn't care about Herman's Hermits. So they were talking just to you and 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 they were kind of famous, and it was kind of exciting, right, to listen to them. And and that's the relationship that people have with radio. It's a friend. It's somebody they feel like yeah. they kind of know. And you can do that in radio so
3: much more powerfully. than I love writing, but you can't do it the same way in writing. Well, to take people into a dimension, that's the only way I can think about it. I've gone back to segregating time in the day now that my kids are in school and the summer is, you know, is is behind us, and I'm and I'm getting back to where I'm reading more devotedly, and some of what I'm reading is dry, but I I soldier on because I want to get to the parts of it that are. I'm reading. I think it's Gene Herbert Smith is the writer, his biography of Eisenhower. To have a writer engage you and, and draw you into that dimension where all of a sudden you stop counting pages, you stop mm-hmm. thinking about time, and you're really into the reading and it's you're really engaged. That requires a talent I don't have. I've written three books, but for me, if you have any success in radio, the human voice is a very, it's a much quicker way to get in. You know, people will let you in quicker if they develop some relationship with you and your voice. You and I are very different but, but I get the sense f- for you that you genuinely are interested. For the most part, 90% of the guests that come on are people who I'm dying to have them on the show. I really couldn't wait to sit down and talk to them. Do you feel that way as well? I do. I mean, I'm, I'm... The enthusiasm is still there. Yeah, I'm pretty excited most days.
4: One of the ways that you and I are different is you're very good at interviewing people that you admire and people who are pretty famous and... I tend to be interviewing people more. I don't think I'm very good at that. In fact, I think I'm actively bad at interviewing people I admire. And I I almost now try to avoid it because I know how bad I am at it. And so for me, what drives it more is this, we pick a subject, you know, we pick an idea and then we try to put the voices in with it. Just, you know, we did a show about Occam's Razor, you know, which is a concept that begins in the Middle Ages. But for the most part, for me, it starts with the idea. You know, when I'm interviewing somebody really famous, particularly somebody I admire, I'm, you know, I don't have the kind of detachment it takes to make that a good
3: interview. Colin McEnroe. If you're enjoying this conversation, be sure to subscribe to Here's the Thing on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back, Colin McEnroe tells us how he inherited the playwriting gene, despite his father's intentions to steer him anywhere else. I'm Alec Baldwin, and this is Here's the Thing from iHeartRadio. Colin McEnroe is the author of three books, including a memoir and a collection of his hilarious columns. His writing also found its way to the stage. He co-wrote the play A Woman of a Certain Age with Steve Metcalf and Larry Bloom.
4: I would sort of avoided playwriting. My father was a playwright, and he had two shows on Broadway, and then he had a lot of trouble getting produced and his goal in life was to make sure I did almost anything other than that. He wanted me to stay out of the theater in every possible way. So I hadn't really done too much like that. And these two other gentlemen, who I knew pretty well, were at a point where they realized that they had songs, but neither one of them was really able to write the so-called book of the <laughs> musical. And so they they brought me in. There was not a lot of time to do this. We thought we would be working on this for two or three years we, we wanted a place to kind of workshop it. And there's a beautiful theater in Connecticut called the Ivoryton Playhouse. And if you go there and you look at the walls, it just turns out everybody, you know, has appeared there at some point. I mean, you know, like Groucho Marx performed there. So we said, look, can we just come in during a flat time in your schedule and just, you know, scripts in hand, workshop this show? And they, their board met, and they said, no, we want you to actually put the play on with... Real actors and costumes and sets, and we're going to give you a budget and here's some money. And we really weren't ready to do this at all. So, yeah, that was sort of the story of that. And it was, it took maybe I'd say four years off my life. I was approached a couple of years ago to write some material for a symphony orchestra that was going to do Liszt's Faust, which is a very, very difficult symphonic piece. And it's mm-hmm. too long, and there are a lot of problems with it. So they said, What if you? could write the kind of interstitial, dramatic interludes. And so the orchestra would stop playing and some actors would come on and and they would you know, they'll perform your material and then the orchestra will come back. And And I was working with a very good conductor, a very good director, and I was writing this stuff. And I just thought, this is crap. I am terrible. And I was actively discouraging friends from college from coming to this, you know, people who've known me for 40 years. And, and then the actors showed up and they hired really good actors from New York. And we had a table read and I got up from the table read at one point. And I kind of excused myself and went into the hall and I called my partner, my significant other, and I said to her, It turns out I am Tennessee Williams. I am a, <laughs> I am a genius. Because, or at least like,
3: Oscar Levant. You're yeah, Oscar right. Levant.
4: Yeah, yeah, but that's only so I can get on to Jack Park You're, show. With Alex. Tennessee
3: Williams, that's not nutty enough. You gotta yeah, go right. full blown Oscar yeah.
4: Levant. But I mean when really good actors read your stuff and then they also ask you questions. I'm sure you do this all the time. Why is God saying this line here. Why is it? Why did you word it that way? What? It's inevitably as the writer, it's stuff you never thought about, but it's a really good question that you have. Mm-hmm. To, and that's so stimulating and exciting
3: that, yeah, if I had more time, I'd probably do more of that kind of thing. I find, oddly, that over the years, there's uh, strategy and tactics. There's what you want to do and how you go about doing it. Mm -hmm. What do you want your screenplay to be about? What story do you want to tell? And how effectively do you tell it? I mean, there, there are people who have, like, really stupid ideas like The Hangover. Mm-hmm. But they execute it brilliantly. They, they get every drop of juice out of the rind that they can. Then there's people who have fabulous ideas and the execution is poor. But I found very often when I was working in the movie business, and especially, I'd say that the writing is good and the ideas in this scene, the ideas are just in the wrong order. Mm-hmm. Now, talk about your dad. Your dad was a playwright, He was a playwright. He had kind of a big hit. It was called The
4: Silver Whistle that starred Jose Ferrer. It actually got turned into, through a very painful process, I think, it got turned into one of the Mr. Belvedere movies. It's Mr. Belvedere Rings the Bell with Clifton Uh but So that was his big hit. Then he did a show called Donnybrook, which was a musical uh, it was a musical adaptation of the of the quiet the movie The Quiet Man, um, and it it was less successful. He wrote the book for that. Johnny Burke wrote the music. I will say that I, over the years, I've become friends with Frank Rich. Frank is one of the few people I know who actually saw Donny Burke, not as right. a New York Times film critic because he was way too young for that. But as a kid. when Frank when Frank was young, he just yeah he went and saw everything. So yeah, he saw he saw Donny Burke, and then after that, he really struggled a lot, you know. And I, there were.
3: How old were reasons. you when the struggles began?
4: I was still in elementary school, I think, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and you were so Yeah, I saw writing as this thing that was really, really hard to do, and where you were. I mean, one thing about the theater, as you know, is. You know, it's not like writing a novel. There are a lot of people involved. And some of those people are going to make you better. It's like what I said about writing the Faust stuff. You know, two actors show up, they start reading your lines, and you think you're a genius because they're making you better. But also in theater, there's just a lot of stakeholders, a lot of collaborators, and I think seeing that and seeing him get very close, you know, to have a really prestigious director attached to the project. There were like really famous producers who would almost produce one of my dad's plays and then it would fall apart. And I I, I realized I didn't want that. I didn't want to spend three years of my life writing a script that was eventually not going to make right. it to the stage. Ignored. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I have a pretty short gratification span. Like I really like being on the radio because I do it every day. And whatever happens, it happens over a twenty four hour arc. And and I don't have a lot of patience. One reason I'm not more of an author is I don't really want to work for two years on a book and
3: then, you know, right. have to deal with all that. It's a lot of work. You have to yeah. you have to be a certain kind of person. And your father passed away when you were how old?
4: He passed away nineteen ninety eight. So I guess I was Oh,
3: so you sorry, were older
4: yeah. Oh yeah, I was forty four. He's a lot of the reasons I am the way I am. He was a very funny guy. He was in a lot of pain, a lot of emotional and psychological pain. Hmm. And it took me a long time to understand that, how much pain he was in because of, I I wound up writing an entire book about it. It's called My Father's Footprints. This is why I don't write books, Alex. So I I, I had this project, Warner Books came to me and they, they said, they'd read an essay that I'd written about my father. They said, we want you to turn it into a whole book. And I said, okay. And so the book was called The Last Time My Father Died. And it was very much based on the idea that I, you know, this is sort of true with our parents. You kind of watch them die in different ways over the course Mm -hmm. of their lives or almost die from some real medical cause or whatever. So it's called The Last Time My Father Died and I think they were, this is kind of right around the time of Tuesdays with Maury. And I think they were thinking, they'd read this essay and they thought, oh, yeah, this will be like Tuesdays with Maury, but it's his father and his father dies. And it wasn't anything like that. It was this kind of big Irish book about Irish-American dysfunction. And it wasn't a big book, but it was it had a lot of big dysfunction in it. And at a certain point, they changed the title without telling me. I it's like somebody looked it up on a Borders computer one day. They said, Do you know, your book is not called the last time my father died anymore? And I said, no, first I heard.
3: (laughs) Exactly. Now, you're born and raised in Connecticut. Did you spend any length of time living anywhere else?
4: Not really, no. I mean, I made it worse by going to Yale, so I
3: didn't get out of the state that way either. I'm very similar, which is I used to tell people my dream, and it remains my dream. I've abandoned it for practical purposes, but in my heart it still lives, which is I get a nice little house in uh, Stockbridge, Massachusetts, and I can walk to the Red Lion and have lunch every day, and then I can, uh, you know, read a book or what have you. I just love the Berkshires. I love Tanglewood. That's my favorite place in the world. And I love the area in Vermont where my w- wife and I just bought a home. But to stay somewhere and to, and to live somewhere for maybe not your entire life, but much of your life, I mean, large chunks of your life, I'm kind of fond of that idea. Is there anything that you wish you'd done differently? Are there places that you wanted to live? I mean, forget about your career. Are there Mm -hmm. places you wanted to experience and live there for a while? Did you ever Mm -hmm. contemplate that?
4: Yeah, I mean, I mean, I'd like to live in Paris for a year, but then I'd like to come home to Connecticut. I mean, this is really home, you know. Um, I'd like there's a lot of places I'd like to live for a year. Yeah, but, but I I'm fine here, you know. I mean, this really is home. It's a beautiful state. I agree about the Berkshires. We used to do our show every year from the Berkshire Film Festival, which is a really fun you know, way to do something and everybody's there. And so Peter Rieger comes and sits down at your microphone and starts talking, whatever, you know, and Karen Allen has like a yarn shop. I love Karen. So, I mean, in Connecticut, I've been able to do most of the things that I want to do. And I mean, thanks to the miracle of the internet, yeah, I can have an active magazine writing career. I can write filthy articles for Cosmopolitan. But I think also- because I think part of your question is, why am I at a smaller market, a medium-sized market, whatever? And yeah. there, there is something fun about punching above your own weight. And that's what I think we do at our, on our show. I, maybe I give us too much credit. But on any given day, we feel as though we can do as good a show as just about anybody. We don't have the kind of you know phalanx of producers that that some shows have but we feel that we can compete with anybody and it's always kind of thrilling if you're from Connecticut and you've got a small staff and you're doing a show if like Adam Gopnik who's from the New Yorker who has been on our show a few times if like Adam will call up my producer or email my producer at the end of a book tour and say you know I just did a lot of radio shows Your show was the best one I did. That was the most thoughtful interview anybody did. That's really thrilling to us when people have that reaction and they want to come back to the show. I mean, that means we're sort of the mouse that roared a little bit. There was a day when I got on my computer in the morning and there was this email that was you know, purportedly from Ira Glass. And it, uh, it said, hi, I've been listening to your show for a while. And I have some questions about, you know, what it is you're doing, why you do it. And I'm just looking all over to figure out how am I being pranked? Which one of my friends from college <laughs> has figured out how to make it seem like he's sending me an email from Ira Glass? But it did turn out it was from Ira, And, you know, he did have some, he'd been listening pretty carefully, and he had some very specific questions about this. Now, the humiliating part about this was he was going to be giving a speech at a public radio conference. He wanted to talk about somebody who's doing really creative, innovative programming at the local station level, produced out of a, you know, a local station. And he was going to use us as the example And I wasn't going to be at that conference. And I decided I'm not going to be this desperate guy who needs to watch this speech to see what Ira Glass says about me. And then, of course, I lost all my willpower and I did exactly that. And I'm watching and watching. It comes to the end of the speech and he goes, and for example, there is this one show. It's very unusual. It's done out of Connecticut. The host is a guy named Chris McEnroe. And I went, Chris, (laughs) this is my moment of fame, Ira.
3: Yeah. (laughs) Do you ever think of doing a show with someone else or do you feel you're the Lone Ranger? You need to, it's you being you or do you ever thought about partnering with somebody?
4: I think when you're alone, you want a sidekick. And then
3: if you have a sidekick, you start thinking, (laughs) why did I want this? Well said. I'm a huge fan of yours. Thank you, Colin McEnroe. Thank you. My thanks to Colin McEnroe. This episode... Was recorded at CDM Studios in New York City. We're produced by Kathleen Russo, Zach McNeese, and Maureen Hoban. Our engineer is Frank Imperial. Our social media manager is Daniel Gingrich. I'm Alec Baldwin. Here's the thing is brought to you by iHeart Radio.
6: taxes and fees not included. Offer valid through 4 24 while supplies last. Online only. Must purchase a straight talk extended silver unlimited plan to qualify. Limit of five phones per customer. Family plan discount with four lines all on the silver unlimited plan. Not combinable with auto pay discount.
2: Nobody wants to outlive their money, but it happens, especially for women. That's why Gainbridge offers the Parity Flex annuity. Designed for women's unique retirement needs. With flexible withdrawals plus a guaranteed lifetime income benefit that keeps paying you even if your account balance is zero. Gainbridge is helping build a better financial future for women. Retirement an income you can't outlive is the ultimate flex. Start saving now at GameBridge.io. Visit GameBridge.io/ParityFlex for current rates, full product disclosures and disclaimers, and other important information.
5: With the best all-inclusive vacation deals to Mexico and the Caribbean, booking your getaway with cheap Caribbean vacations means you have more freedom. Whether you want to enjoy snorkeling, endless margaritas, and more, cheap Caribbean vacations has your deal for that. Plan and book using our exclusive budget beach finder or find a featured all-inclusive package to Hyatt Ziva Riviera Cancun at CheapCaribbean.com. That's CheapCaribbean.com.